Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a beautiful hymn that really captures the spirit of Advent, and that is one of longing, looking forward uh, to something that has not yet arrived. And that song so beautifully expresses, not only in its word, but in its melody, a sense of not yet, looking forward. That's what we're going to be thinking about this Sunday as we begin our season of Advent. I want to think about that, that word longing. And I want to communicate to us that, that it's an essential part of life and I think an essential part of, of Christian faith. And as we do so, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 33, a very short passage. And as we look at this passage, we're going to ask three simple questions. We're going to look at where Jeremiah, where they are now, where the people of God are now. Referring, to, of course, to Jeremiah's uh, situation, but also by implication ours as well. Where is Jeremiah? Where are God's people now? Next, we're going to look at where, where, where they're headed, where they want to be, where they ought to be. Third and final, we're just going to consider how do we get there? How do we get from where they are, where we are, to where we want to be. So let's jump right in. Jeremiah chapter 33. Behold, says Jeremiah, the days are coming when I will fulfill my promises to the house of Israel. The days are coming in by implication, therefore the days are not quite yet there. And Jeremiah's prophecy is about the coming days, days that have not yet arrived. And there's much that we could say about the coming days. I want us to focus simply on verse 16, because in verse 16, we're told a couple of characteristics that will be true of the days to come. And the days to come will be marked by the following things. Judah, God's people, will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And the name by which they will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. They will be safe. They will be permanent or secure. And they will have a goodness or a righteousness that is somehow attributed to them by God. Safe, secure, or permanent and good. That's, that's the days to come. And by implication, those days are, are, not, are not yet. They're certainly true, that is certainly true in Jeremiah's writing. As Jeremiah writes, God's people are neither safe, nor are they secure, nor are they particularly good. So quick Old Testament history lesson. As Jeremiah writes, he's writing probably around the year 587, 586 B.C., which is significant only because that's the, the same year in which uh, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. As Jeremiah writes, the, uh, the Babylonians are at the gate. So we read from Jeremiah 33. If you back up a few chapters to Jeremiah 32, pardon me, one chapter, a few verses, we read this. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it because of sword and famine and pestilence. It cannot be more dire. Uh, the, the bad guys are knocking at the door, and nor are they secure. Uh, 586, the nation of Israel will fall. Uh, the Babylonians will uh, ravage the land. And for the next, oh, I don't know, two and a half millennia, not until, 1940, uh, not until the 1940s, will the nation of Israel come, come back into existence. They are not permanent. 
Remember Jeremiah's prophecy, my people will be safe. They will be secure or permanent. They are neither of those, and nor, nor are they good. Not only is it significant when Jeremiah wrote, but also where he wrote from. Jeremiah wrote from prison. So if you back up to chapter 33, verse 1, we read this. The word of God came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the, uh, shut up in the court, in prison, under house arrest. So here's the situation as Jeremiah writes. The enemy is at the gate. The siege mounds are approaching. Famine and pestilence are inside, not safe, not secure. Uh, and worse still, there's a moral rottenness. That's true of the people exemplified by the fact that the one truth teller, Jeremiah, is stuck in prison. Yet, the days are coming when God's people will be saved, dwell secure, and be good and righteous. As he writes, none of those things are true. Not safe, not secure, nor particularly good. That's where they are, and that's where we are too. Not safe, not secure, not particularly good. Now, when we were in Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh is the second, uh, we did our seminary training in Pittsburgh, and uh, Pittsburgh is the second rainiest city behind Seattle. Uh, and there is a cute little four-year-old uh, daughter of one of the seminary students who would all, he, she couldn't say her R's, and she would say, it's a great day in Pittsburgh, but don't worry, it'll get better. Uh, so this sermon is a great day, but don't worry, it'll get better. First num point number one is a great day, but don't worry, it'll get better. So the opening point is where we are is not terribly dissimilar from where they are. No, no siege mounds are knocking on the door and no famine or pestilence, but the things that we think are true, that we're safe, secure, and good, it's just a figment of our imagination. We think we're safe, we're not. This fall we had a beloved family member pass away, and they were an older generation, but certainly the passing was untimely. And what uh, it was hard for us, me, for my family to grasp the severity of the diagnosis and now the reality of uh, this family member's absence. And one of the things that we would say and hear was we just can't believe it. I can't believe it. It feels surreal. How could this happen? Active six months ago. And you'll note that that sense of disbelief or incredulity is pretty common when bad stuff happens, isn't it? We'll hear one tragedy after another. And we'll think, how, I just never thought this could happen here. And I guess the question that we have to ponder is, well, why not? How could this happen to this family member? How could they get sick and die of cancer? Well, here's the sobering reality. It happens all the time. Every minute of every day. We just never think it'll happen to me or us or someone we love. So when it does happen, there's a sense of, I just can't believe, why can't we believe it? What evidence would suggest that you and I are immune it's a figment. We are not safe. No siege mounds by the gate. But any, any belief of your own safety is just an illusion. Neither are we secure or permanent. Remember, this is a great day in Pittsburgh. It'll get better. We're not permanent either. 
We just finished, uh, I've come to realize that the word finished when in regards to a, a home renovation always has an ellipse, so we are finished-ish on a home renovation, and I, we're proud of it. My wife did a great job, and it's a lovely, uh, we're just proud, and it feels like our home, my home. And I had this not altogether pleasant thought a couple of weeks ago. I was in my shed just finishing up a project and look at our back of our house, which is coming together so nicely. And I had this realization, you know what? Someone else lived here before me. And even more unpleasant, someone else is going to live here after me. And someone else is going to raise their kids. And someone else is going to sleep where I slept and eat where I ate. Permanence. Where do we get this idea that we're permanent? That the homes that we live in are ours by any stretch of a reasonable definition. 30 years maybe? And I am been surprised and sobered at how quickly even those who have a very full, very active life, many of you have very full, very active lives, how quickly after that life is gone, how quickly that life is reduced to just a, a handful of photographs that are cherished by an ever-decreasing number of people to one day stuck in a closet. Permanence? You and I are no more permanent than the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. We don't believe it. I feel permanent, don't you? Don't you feel like your home is yours? It's an illusion. Safe, permanent, nor good. Finally, good. Dale Carnegie wrote this book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Opening chapter of that book begins like this. It begins with a story of the mobster Two-Gun Crowley, who, after a life of crime, was pulled over at a routine traffic stop, shot and killed the officer, which led to a dramatic uh, chase, and eventual standoff uh, in an apartment building in New York City. It is the most violent and most dramatic scene that city had ever seen, and Tugan Crowley is still regarded as one of the most notorious criminals. And as the scene unfolds, Crowley is wounded. He knows that the bad guy, or the good guys, are coming uh, soon to, to capture him. And he writes something. He writes his reflections about himself and slips it into his, his breast pocket of his coat where the investigators later find it. And what Crowley wrote is his assessment of himself. He writes this. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, and one that would do no one no harm. One of the most notorious criminals just took a man's life. A weary heart, but a kind one. And all the disasters that typified that surrounded his life were not his fault. He was a victim. And Carnegie illustrates those points by citing all sorts of notorious criminals, Al Capone, and etc., who all think that they are basically good, not to blame for any of the problems that surround them. 
And so what asks Carnegie about the people that you and I come in contact with? We have a similar self-assessment. We think we're basically good. And all the problems that surround you and surround me are really your fault, not mine. I trust we don't have the disastrous life that Two Gun Crowley had, nor Al Capone, or any of these extreme examples. But we all have our, our disasters. We all have relationships that fail. We all have work that is unsatisfying. And who's to blame for those things? Not me. Problems with my work are my bosses. The problems with my children is certainly not my parenting. The problems with my marriage belong to my spouse. Because under my heart, under is a weary heart, but it's a good one. And you tell yourself the same thing. Permanent, and safe, and good. Illusions. We're not those things any more than they were. So here's the question, though. Why do you and I believe it? Why do you and I have such a, why are we so quick to believe that we are those things that we are certainly not? Well, here's why I think. It's because you and I are hardwired to believe that such a place exists. We're made for a place where those things are true. Jeremiah writes of a coming day when God's people will be safe and secure and good. The New Testament writes of a similar hope. Listen to how God describes eternity in the last book of the Bible. So now we're moving from where we are to where we want to be. Listen to the similarities between what Jeremiah anticipates and the last, the last book of the Bible, Bible anticipates as well. This from the final chapters of the book of Revelation. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. No more, no more crying. Why? Because you and I will be safe. And we'll be secure, finally. And death will be no more. No more, no more mourning. Finally, permanence. Finally, life, full lives will not be reduced to a handful of photographs in somebody's closet. Permanence. There will be no more death. Safety and permanence and goodness. One day what I believe about myself and what you believe about yourself will finally be true and that you will be good and you will be righteous. And not only you, you will know what is good and what is right and you will want what is good and what is right and you'll have the will to pursue what is good and right because sin will be no more. Right now I can only muster one of the three to want what is right, to know what is right, or to will to do what is right. But one day, I will be good and righteous, just like is anticipated here. The reason we believe that we are safe, we are permanent, and we are good is that we are hardwired to believe that such a place exists. And it does. It does exist. What the Bible calls heaven, the only thing, it's not yet here. So we long for it. C.S. Lewis writes in his little essay, The Weight of Glory, he says this, the fact that you get hungry does not necessarily prove that you will find food, but it does suggest that something like food does exist. 
Further, he suggests the fact that you and I hunger for something that is beyond our experience, for a place that is safe and secure, a place that is marked by goodness and righteousness, a place that we call heaven or eternity, the fact that you long for this and no earthly thing can satisfy it suggests to us that such a place does exist. It is by no means a guarantor that you and I will get there, but the fact that you hunger for it suggests the reality of it. So where we are, neither safe, secure, nor good. Where do you want to be? A place where those things are true. Finally, how, you, how are we going to get there? So turn back to your passage, Jeremiah chapter 33. And I want you to do, do a little grammar lesson. What I want us to note is the use of active verbs when God is the uh, subject and the use of passive verbs. Remember, passive verbs are kind of a no-no in English grammar. You note the use of passive verbs when, you, when God's people are the subject. So, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, that being the Lord, will fulfill. That's an active verb. When I will fulfill the promises I, God, made, that's an active verb to the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I, God, will cause active a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he, that righteous branch we know to be Christ, he shall execute justice, active, and righteousness, active. And now we change. In those days, Judah, God's people, the subject will be passive. Is Judah saving themselves? No, they are being saved. Uh, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. Uh, again, they're being acted upon. And the name by which they are known will be righteousness or goodness. Again, their point is simple. If you and I are to get from where we are to where we want to be, it is not going to be you and I that get us there. Right? Safety, security, goodness. You and I can't do it. You can eat kale. I don't eat kale. You could eat kale. That's helpful. But kale versus, oh, I don't know, pick your horrible disease. You know which one wins every time? Horrible disease. You can take steps to be good. And I, you should. Self-discipline, getting up early, good manners, those are good things. Do them. But don't kid yourself that your steps in self-discipline are going to change the fundamental nature of your heart. That's what Jeremiah says. He says, can a, uh, can a leopard change its spots? Can, a, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin, his quote, not mine? No. It's an intract- there's an intractable problem of the human heart. <laughs> And don't kid yourself to think that a little self-discipline around the edges is going to really do a fundamental change. You really want to be good, to know what is good, want what is good, and have the will to pursue what is good. you got to look for something outside yourself because it's not going to come from within. That's what Jeremiah insists. Only God can do these things for us, and he will. He did cause a righteous branch to spring up. And Jesus did execute righteousness and justice. And we believe that one day Jesus will return. And when he does return, he will bring God's plan of salvation to completion. And when he does, God's people will dwell in safety. They will dwell in security. And they will be good. 
And as we long, we wait for that day, we long for it to come. For God to do for us those things we cannot do for ourselves. So here's my contention. I don't know if you are good at longing, if longing is a part of your life, but it should be. And I'm concerned that if you and I do not long, it's either we've forgotten one of three things. We've forgotten where we are. We've gotten used to where we are in a way that's not helpful or healthy. We've forgotten where we are destined to be. Or we've forgotten that only God can get us there. So this Advent, let's remember that. Hmm? Let's remember where you are. You are not safe, secure, nor are you good. Remember that that is something that is it's not an accident that you long for those things and you believe them in some ways to be true because you are made for those things. You're made for a place where those are true. And let's remember that only God can get you from here to there as you turn to him. You know what that looks like, this longing looks like on a practical level? It simply looks like prayer. Prayer is what happens when you look at something that is not what you want it to be, where you know it should be different, and you entrust God to do what you cannot do. So this Advent, let's be that kind of people. Let's be the type of people who long, whose longing is expressed in prayer. Maybe we, could, we had our men sing uh, the opening stanza. Maybe I could have the men of our choir close this sermon as we began. Let's just hear that opening stanza of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And as they sing, in your mind, bring, call something to mind, something that is not as it should be, something where you know God has a better plan, and present it to him, saying, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And fix what I cannot fix. Mm.